Blessed are you, Adonai, our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us with his commandments and commanded us to engross ourselves in the words of your Torah. Please, Adonai, our God, sweeten the words of your Torah in our mouth and the mouth of your people, the house of Israel. May we and our offspring and our offspring's offspring and our offspring of your people Israel, the house of Israel, all of us, know your name and study your Torah for its own sake. Blessed are you, Adonai, who teaches Torah to his people, Yisrael. Amen. All right, story number one. This is a story that I've shared before from the Hasidic tales about the beggar Messiah. But I want to share it again because we are been studying Tazria all week, and it brings up the concept of the, um, the leper Messiah and the beggar Messiah, which are very similar. And if you've been listening to this uh, program called the Aliyah Day. It's amazing. It's coast to coast. It's actually worldwide. Uh, there was a rabbi in there talking about that this week, the Rombel. And so it says, Reb Yaakov Yitzhak of Shikach, the Yid of HaKadosh, once ordered his senior disciple Reb Simcha Bunim, to make a journey to a distant hamlet. When he inquired as to the purpose of the journey, the Yid HaKodesh remained silent. Reb Simcha Bunim took several Hasidim with him and left on the journey. The sky had already turned to dust by the time they arrived at their destination, and because the, the town had no inn, there's no room at the inn, Reb Simcha Bunim ordered his coachman to stop at the first cottage. He knocked at the door and was invited in along with his Talmudim. When they asked whether they could join their host for dinner, the man replied that he had no dairy food and could offer them only a meat meal. Now this is a Jewish person. It's a Jewish home because you would never stop at a non-Jewish home and ask for dinner. Right? So I just want to point that out. It's a Jewish home. Instantly, the Hasidim began to bombard the man with questions about his level of kashrut. Who is the shokit? That's the butcher. They demanded to know. Were the animal's lungs free of even the smallest blemish? And was the meat salted sufficiently to draw out the traces of blood that was required by the law? The interrogation would have continued had not a commanding voice from the back of the cottage called out to them. They turned to their attention from the owner of the home to a man who was a beggar sitting near the fireplace, the hearth of the fireplace, smoking a pipe. My dear Hasidim, the beggar said, with regard to what goes into your mouths, you are very scrupulous. Yet regarding what comes out of your mouth, you make no inquiry at all. See, the, the quote-unquote leprosy, the zarat of Tazria was all about Lashon Hara. And by going to a Yid, by going to a Jew's home who's offering you a meal, he's offering you a meal. You're not paying for it. He's offering to you. You begin to inquire about the kashrut status, 
How come you're not washing with ceremony hands? I'm sorry, that's not what he said. They said, um, that was another story I was thinking about. What about the show kit? Well, you don't have the right uh, hand washing cup. All this kind of stuff going on. He said, it's not, the beggar said, it's not what goes in your mouth. The problem is what's coming out of it. The beggar in this story is the Mashiach, by the way, in case you didn't get that. Smoking a pipe. <laughs> when Reb Sinka Bunim heard these words, he knew the reason for his journey. He nodded respectfully to the beggar, thanked the house owner for his concern, got back in their wagon and said, come, our students, let us return to Shikat, the town of Shikat, because we've learned our lesson. We've learned our lesson that it's what comes out of our mouth is what defiles us more so than what goes in it. This is from a Hasidic Tales book. Next story. You all were bored with that one, so let's go to the next one. <laughs> so it says here, During a visit with Rabbi Yaakov Yitzhak, the Hazon of Lublin, a schoolmaster from Gorai, was told, there exists in your town a hidden spark of God that needs nurturing. Locate this spark and bring him to me. Understanding Reb Yaakov Yitzhak to mean that Gore was home to a fledgling saint, the schoolmaster returned home and spent the night hiding in the base midrash, that is the, the shul, the synagogue. If there is hidden saint among us, he thought to himself, he will surely come to study when all the others go home to sleep. So he's waiting to see who's going to come to the shul late in the night to study because that person is obviously the Zadik that, that the uh, rabbi is looking for. That night, Menachem Mendel, an odd fellow, thought to be illiterate and perhaps a little insane, entered the base midrash. Opening a volume of Talmud, he stood on one foot and entered into pure ecstasy as he read aloud from the text. Remember, they thought he was illiterate. The schoolmaster was stunned. Notice it says, he, notice he wasn't learning the Talmud on Google. Can't do that. So the schoolmaster was stunned. By the way, when you're looking at a, a daf of Talmud, not only do you have the Talmudic test, text, that's why you can't study on the internet. Let me tell you why. If you're looking at a daf, uh, a page of Talmud, you have the text of Talmud, and surrounding that text is about a dozen or so commentaries on the text. You're not just reading the straight text. Because first of all, it's an ancient text. People, you might, might surprise you, thought differently 2,000 years ago. And sometimes our cultural understanding of things doesn't jive with cultural understandings and thought processes from two or 3,000 years ago. That's going to surprise you, I know. But just imagine that in, in our 21st century, we don't think the same as they did in, before the Common Era. So anyway, that was just an aside so the schoolmaster was stunned to be certain this was not a fluke. 
He spent several nights in hiding. Each night at midnight, Menachem Mendel snuck into the base Midrash and slipped into paradise. Night after night, he watched this, this Yid come in. On the fourth night, a bit of dust lodged in the schoolmaster's throat, and he coughed out loud. Menachem Mendel slammed his book closed, leaped over to the stove, and began clapping his hand loudly and babbling like an insane maniac. The schoolmaster came out of hiding and spoke to him, please stop. I am not here to reveal your secret, but to tell you that the Jose of Lublin wishes me to take you to him. So Menachman Mendel set out immediately for Lublin. When Menachman Mendel's father, who was a Misnaged, now a Misnaged is one of the traditional Orthodox who was opposed to Hasidic Judaism and considered Hasidic Judaism to be heretical Judaism. So this, man's, this young man's father was opposed to him uh, studying in a Hasidic way, which is probably one of the reasons why he pretended to be an insane person so that he could get away with what he was doing at night by himself. So when his father found out that his son had departed, he rode after them, hoping to bring his son back home. And finding his son, listen to this, finding his son, he said to his son, because his son is going after the Hasidic way. Why? Because the Hasidic way was all about love of God, joy of God, seeking God. Everybody, no matter who you are, can become close to Hashem. And back then, the Orthodox, back in those days, did not believe that which is the one of the reasons why some of the halakha is so meticulous and so, so stringent. Let me explain something to you. Let me explain <laughs> before I continue the story. Because once I read this line, y'all are going to want to go to Oneg. <laughs> so I need to take the time to, so y'all are here, right? Okay, good. <laughs> Let me give you an example. The problem with the orthodox way of thinking, it's not necessarily, I'm not, Please don't misunderstand. It's not necessarily a bad way of thinking. I understand. But it doesn't challenge people. The orthodox way of thinking back in antiquity was is that you can't expect everybody to understand. So everybody's like an amha aditz. They're like an ignorant person, like a, pers like a backwoods person. You have to be a scholar. Only scholars can get it. So, you, so in order to get everybody on the same page, it's better just to give them a bunch of restrictions. That way you don't have to worry about it. For instance... There's a, the, the not allowed to carry on Shabbat. Why? Where did that come from? came from the book of Nehemiah about donkeys and mules and so on that were loaded down with merchant goods carried to the front of the gate of Yerushalayim so that as soon as the Shabbat is over, you can start selling. They would camp outside the gate. And how do we know, by the way, that the Sabbath starts at sundown, at sunset? We know that from Nehemiah because it says, when the shadow of the sun sat upon the gate, the Sabbath would begin. Uh, so if you're thinking the Jews made that up about it starting at Sunday, it's in the Bible. But anyway, <laughs> so you're not allowed to carry on Shabbat, right? What's the purpose of carrying on Shabbat? You don't, you don't sell stuff. So we took that mitzvah, and now you're not allowed, without an arrow, to carry even so much as a piece of lint in your pocket on Shabbat. 
So why is it that you have such a stringency? And the answer is because it's too difficult. The, the mindset is it's too difficult to tell somebody to think it through. So you just tell them, you know what, don't carry anything, nothing, not one thing. That way I don't worry about you selling anything because you don't even have lint in your pocket. You see? This is where the mindset comes from. The Hasidics believed something differently, that every Jew, no matter who you were, had an opportunity to aspire into the presence of God. And so this father was against the Hasidics. Now his son is going to learn from a Hasidic master. He rides up and he has a problem with it. And this is what he says to his son. Why are you forsaking the tradition of your fathers? Was the son going off to be a goy? No. He was going off to, to learn a new level of Judaism, which today Judaism considers the heart of Judaism, but at the time it was considered a her heresy. And so the question posed by the dad to his son, who's going a new way to, to do what? To draw closer to Hashem, to draw closer into the presence, the question is, why are you forsaking the traditions of your fathers? So when they asked that of Yeshua, they were not suggesting that he was not living a Jewish life. They were just wondering, how come you're going from the old to the new? But not the old as in we're getting rid of Judaism into the new, something, something, some different religion. Menachem Mendel replied softly and firmly, I'm following the teaching of the Torah. First, Torah tells us, this is my God and I will praise him. Only la later do we read, this is my father's God and I will exalt him. The meaning of that little phrase that Menachem Mendel said was, my first responsibility is to follow Torah and follow my God. My second responsibility is to the traditions of my fathers. As long as the traditions of my fathers, remember, Jewish book here I'm reading here, as long as the traditions of our fathers are in alignment with the Torah and this is my God, that's fine. But at any point they depart from that, I have to stick with the Torah. That's from the Hasidic insights to this. So when they said this to Yeshua, you can see my, the, point, the reason I want to bring this out for one is because this is an internal Jewish dialogue discussion. Hush, Yeshua was not only Jewish, he practiced Judaism, Pharisaical Judaism. But he was, you could say, a Hasid. So are we today. Amen. Make no mistake, because people make the mistake all the time because we believe in the Mashiach. They think that we are, they come in with their mindset of we're Christians, we're not. Which, If you've watched the first video of the conversion class that I taught, you would see that I encourage everybody to jettison that idea. Just like Ruth jettisoned her Moabiteness before she came to Eretz Israel. Now let's get to the Megillah reading, now that we've prefaced it with these uh, statements. Baruch atah Adonai, Eloheinu melech haolam, asher kidshanu mimitzah v'tivanu al mikra Megillah. Blessed you, Adonai, our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us with his commandments and commanded us regarding the reading of the Megillah. Ruth chapter 2. Let's go to the root of the matter. <laughs> root chapter 2. That's her name, 5 through 12. As I typically do, we're going to start with verse 4. The verse for 4. <laughs> Behold, Boaz arrived from Bethlehem. He greeted the harvesters. 
Hashem be with you. Now, by, now Ruth and Naomi have already come back to Eretz Israel. Ruth has been converted. Ruth has now gone out to glean the sheaves in a field. And unbeknownst to her, she happens to be in Boaz's field. And Boaz is her kinsman redeemer, but she doesn't know that. It's all a divine setup. <clears throat> Behold, Boaz arrived in Bethlehem. He greeted the harvesters and said, Hashem be with you. And they answered him, May Hashem bless you. Boaz then said to his servant who was overseeing the harvesters, To whom does that young woman belong? She is a Moabite girl, the servant who was overseeing the harvesters replied. The one that returned with Naomi from the fields of Moab. And she had said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the harvesters. So she came and has been on her feet since the morning until now, except for her resting a little while in the hut. So it says, then Boaz said to Ruth, hear me well, my daughter. Do not go to glean in another field. Do not leave here, but stay close to my maidens. Keep your eyes on the field, which they are harvesting and follow them. I have ordered the young men not to molest you. Should you get thirsty, go to the jugs and drink from what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing down to the ground and said to him, why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take special note of me, though I am a foreigner? Boaz replied and said to her, I have been fully informed all that you have done for your mother-in-law after the death of your husband, how you left your father and mother and the land of your birth and went to a people you had never known before. May Adonai reward your actions and may your payment be full from Adonai, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge." Remember, the, there, there's a psalm about, I forget which one it is, it talks about uh, in the shadow of your wings, something about that, I can't forget which one that is. I think it starts with a nine or something. Let's go back to looking at Ma'am Loez. Let's, we're going to kind of work through these verses, a couple of fine points. This is more of an exegetical uh, drosh, if anything. Behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. Boaz is the kinsman redeemer. He's the one who's going to bring redemption to Naomi vis-a-vis -vis Ruth. And not just to Naomi, but ultimately Boaz is the father of the Mashiach. And Ruth is the mother of the Mashiach. And so Boaz, it says here, and Ma'am Loez's commentary, it says here, he would not usually come out to the field, but on that day, behold, suddenly, unexpected, suddenly, unexpectedly he came suddenly unexpected now remember boaz is a mighty prince of the area he's the brother of elimelech who died and they were their princes of judah as it were so suddenly unexpectedly in order to take for himself a bride the king came to the field suddenly unexpectedly we find the king in the field during the month of redemption this is what we see, the picture of Boaz coming out to the field to find Ruth, the convert, who is gathering the sheaves left behind. One of the reasons why 
he came out and said what he said was because he looked at his field. He looked at everything that God had given him. Now, understand something. The reason that he said the greeting first, the sages say, versus the people greeting him, because naturally, when the, when the prince comes out, when the owner of the field comes out, it would be considered a good etiquette to say shalom or hello or how are you to the person. It's like in the military, an enlisted man salutes an officer and the officer returns the salute. It's not the other way around. But in this case, the officer saluted the men first. Why? Because his wife had just died. He had just come off the seven days of sitting Shiva. And you're not supposed to greet a mourner until they first greet you. So his wife is dead. He's 80 years old. He thinks, my strength is gone. He's probably waiting for the day of his death. What else is there to live for necessarily? Not that he's depressed. I'm not suggesting that. But just as a matter of reality, he rides out to his field. He looks over the fields, and he sees everything that God has done for him. And Mayam Loez brings down, he says, at the splendid side of his grain field and his workers busily harvesting, Boaz exclaimed, God be in your thoughts always. Do not allow material abundance to make you forget him. Consider that you are working now that you can be free to study Torah the rest of the year. In other words, Boaz looked around and he said, you know what, I have a lot to be thankful for. And I have to understand that everything comes from God. I want you to understand something we're about to read here because we're about to get off into a discussion about giving and tithing and so on, briefly anyway. And you're thinking to yourself, probably, what does this have to do with the story of Ruth? You have to understand something. When Boaz came out and saw what God had given him and understand who his source was and was willing to give back to that source a penance, mind you, of what he had given to him, God said, now that you've given back to me, now that you've recognized that I'm your source and you haven't had an evil eye, I'm now going to bless you with Ruth so that you can have the king of Mashiach come from your loins and give for all eternity. All because he wasn't greedy. All because he wasn't greedy. All because he was a tither. That came out of left field, didn't it? No pun intended. <laughs> he said to his workers, Remember God who commanded us to observe the laws connected with the harvest. Peya, leket, shikeka. Welcome the poor graciously and treat them kindly, lest God depart from your midst. Because the reality is, is that God does not hang around stingy people. They replied, your good intentions will lead to blessing and abundance. They were already speaking prophetically to him. What you're telling us to do right now is going to work out as a blessing. Little did he know that there is a young lady in the field. He's 40 years older than she is, but he's going to have the opportunity to marry her. It says, we have indeed fulfilled the mitzvah of the harvest for which God will bless you. And it says here in Ma'am Loez, thus our sages teach, separate a tenth part, that is the tithe, that you may become rich. You know, I know a lot of people have, uh, maybe, based, I don't know where you come from, but there's some people out there that have a bad taste in their mouth because of the 
misuse of giving to organizations. But the concept of giving the tithe in order to become wealthy, my friends, is found in Judaism. It's, it's in the Talmud. It's in the Midrash. The sages once said, I believe, I'm not mistaken, it was the Alter Rebbe who said that you're guaranteed when you give a tithe, tithe now I'm talking about, tithing, not a tip, but a tithe. Both start with a T, but they're different. When you tithe, you're guaranteed four-time return, minimum. That's pretty good. Zal, you're into uh, trading. It's pretty good. Not bad, huh? Not on Shabbat. He doesn't trade on Shabbat, but I'm just saying. <laughs> He's a day trader at 24-6. <laughs> but seriously... Messiah taught this lesson, right? Because we have to understand something. When we don't tithe, you know, we, can, we can come up with every reason in the world why we don't tithe. I'm just going to speak honestly. Can I do that? I'm going to speak honestly. We can come up with any and every reason in the book why we don't tithe. And I'm just going to be honest to you because it's like a physician right now, okay? I'm not trying to make everybody happy. I'm trying to make people healthy. Okay? To tell you what it is so you can get better. That's all it is. It's, it's greed. It's greed. It's an evil eye. It's a stingy eye. It's a stingy heart. That's all it is. You can say, well, I have this excuse, that excuse, this excuse, that excuse. I know. I've been there. My wife and I have been, like, wondering how the ends were going to meet for a large part of our life, praying to God that I would have enough money to pay my car note. Believing God that we could live in this house one more month. I've been there, done that. And we tithe. And so if you're not tithing, I'm just going to tell you something. You just need to be honest with yourself about what it is. Because that's the only way you're going to get free of that problem, is to be honest. It's greed. It's all it is. And with that, I hope you return <laughs> next to your Greek. <laughs> you say, I don't know. I don't know if I trust you, Rabbi. Listen, I work for the sheriff's department, okay? I mean, you know, we adopted an international child. The FBI knows us. Uh, you know what I'm saying? Right. All right. Dep Department of Homeland Security, they just gave us a security grant for the, for the building, right? Yeah. I mean, they don't do that for criminals. I'm just saying. <laughs> if there's any, you know, the honest truth of it is, not, not that this is an issue, but it is kind of funny. The honest truth, if there's ever been a more vetted rabbi in America, I mean, honestly, I mean, really, Department of Homeland Security, FBI, Tarrant County Sheriff's Department, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I have fingerprints everywhere, and I have a gun license. I mean, come on. I can't do anymore. I mean, the next level would be Secret Service. Yeah, I don't know. What am I going to do? <laughs> so trust me, all right? Wow. 
Anyway, can I read this? Can I finish? All right. Matthew chapter 6, verses 19. This is Yeshua talking. All right. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and rottenness consume them and thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasure in heaven where moths and rottenness do not consume them and thieves do not break in and steal. For in the place where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The lamp of the body is the eye, and if your eye is whole, your entire body is illuminated. But if your eye is evil, that's talking about greed. The euphemism here is greed. If your eye is evil, your entire body will be darkened, and if the light within you is darkened, how great is that darkness. A man is not able to serve two masters, for he will hate the one and love the other, or he will cling to one and despise the other, you are not able to serve both God and money or mammon. Now, the evil eye, just one quick reference to the Maral of Prague, to Birkei Avot, 5.22. Talking about we need to have a good eye. In what, in what way do we have a good eye? Or who are we emulating when we have a good eye? When we're generous, who we emulate? When you tithe, who are you emulating? Ultimately, yes. Avraham. The Pirkei Avot says a good eye means benevolence. Avraham would draw travelers in to be guests in his home, and he would be kind and generous. We see that his humble spirit, when he refers to himself as dust and ash before God, while pleading for the lives of Sodom. Think about that. He's pleading, he's, he's interceding for Sodom and Gomorrah, and he tells God, I'm dust and ash. Now, if you have an evil eye, according to Pirkei Avot in the commentary by the Maral of Prague, Balaam is who you're emulating. Remember Balaam on the donkey? He's the antithesis, the Maral writes, of Abraham. An evil eye means being malevolent, wanting and desiring evil. This is the quality of one who resents others' good fortune. Socialism, by the way, politically speaking, is ultimately the evil eye. Because you look around and you want somebody else's stuff. You don't care how they got it. They worked for it. You don't want to work for it. I was talking on the way to school one morning to our daughter, and we were talking about minimum wage. We should raise the minimum wage. The whole point of the minimum wage is you don't work at McDonald's all your life. The whole point of that is so you don't work there all your life. You, you want to aspire beyond that. The minimum wage is a prod to make you want to aspire. Balaam is the antithesis. The evil eye means benevolence, that this is the quality of one who resents others' good fortune. It follows from a corrupt nephesh that is filled with jealousy. The Midrash says that Balaam surveyed the people of Israel's dwelling, tribe by tribe, and wished for evil to come upon them. Why? Because he wanted their stuff. Balaam was too arrogant to go to Balak unless he was accompanied by high-ranking officers. And he would only follow him because he had a greedy soul because he wanted the silver and the gold that they were offering to him. An evil eye seeks destruction at every glance, and its ultimate root is arrogance. And so Boaz shows up and he says, listen, I want you to focus that God is your source. 
God is your source. We were reading something last night, a story at the Arab table of a uh, incident apparently that happened this, this last year in the New York area. There were two Jewish uh, fish places. They've sold fish. And one burned a fish market. Thank you. I couldn't think of the. They sold fish. They were fisherers. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> Betty Crocker, whatever. Okay, so one of the fish places burned down in a fire. And so the competitor found out about it and called the other guy and said, what can I do to help? And he said, well, honestly, I need a place to prepare the product and I need a place to sell it. And he said, well, how about this? How about I, you just come in and use half my kitchen and then you can use half my store to sell your fish until you can get everything rebuilt. And so somebody came in and asked, just out of curiosity, how is it, y'all the competitors, how is it that you can bring somebody in like this who's your competitor? And not, I mean, most people in the secular world will be like, oh, it burned down, woo, too bad for you. Now you put signs out, hey, since they can't serve you, come to us. He said, how can you do that? And he said, well, I have a Muna. On Rosh Hashanah, God has already decreed what my year is going to look like. So whether I have a competitor or don't have a competitor makes no difference because everything I'm going to get comes from him. It doesn't change. So I can bring my competitor into my own store and we can still sell. And I, I, if I'm doing good or doing bad, it's only because of he decreed what I should get this year. So you say to yourself, well, if I start tithing, then I'm going to lose. No, no, no. God's already decreed what you're going to get this year. That's why you can spend money on mitzvahs. You're like, man, honey, we spent too much money on, on Seder plates. And it's like, Psh, don't worry about it. When I'm spending money on God, you don't think he, can, he has the money to pay me back? He's the only date you pay for and get your money back. Ah, No, I'm just saying. Preach. I mean, really? How much time we got? Not, not enough. All right, listen. So how does this connect? He sees the field. He's committed to giving. Let the, let the reapers come. Let the people come and, and gather because he realizes everything he has from God anyway. So it's all determined. Man, that's so... That's so important why the 40 days of the Shuvah are so important because God planned your year at that moment. God planned your year at that moment. But he leaves the door open for Teshuvah through the rest of the year. So if you missed it, guess what? You got another chance. Now listen. As he's saying all this, God is listening. He's saying, man, you don't even know that you just opened your field to let a poor person come in and gather the sheaves, but she's going to become your wife, and through her, you're going to have Mashiach. All because you have a revelation of giving. So he's now, he doesn't have a wife. And he probably thinks, hey, I'm 80, you know, sitting by the dock of the bay. 
But it says here, a man without a wife, our sages tell us, is a man without blessing. Man, did you know that, that you have what you have financially because of your wife? Yeah, that's how the Hashem works. He channels the, the, the money resource through your wife into the home. He has to do it because she needs shoes. <laughs> my wife is like she's like will you please buy some new shoes and I'm like kind of these are fine she's like oh my god no. <laughs> you've had those like 10 years I'm like what's wrong they're comfortable so she drug me into a shoe store and I'm picking out shoes and they're out there looking at shoes oh like, my god what do y'all like centipedes or something you can't even... They told me last night, they said they, they cleaned out their closet because of, you know, cleaning for Pesach. Of course, I'm not sure how the closet fits in the Bahamas, but okay. But they cleaned it out. They said, well, we need to go out and buy some new stuff. I rebuked them. <laughs> but then they told me, they said, though, in the Torah, it says that the Abba, his mitzvah is to buy the wife whatever she needs. So I, I don't know. I started singing, Yeet Kadave, Yeet Kadesh. But listen, a man without a wife doesn't have a blessing. And it's on the, it's on the man, it's not on the woman. The woman doesn't go search for her husband. I'm just telling you, this is, a, this is a day for truth. We may not have a congregation next week. I'm just saying. Actually, it's not, I'm not saying it. The sages said it because God said it. So therefore, that when they blessed him, they said to him, may the Lord bless you, meaning may God send you a suitable wife. Now, what's kind of funny here, Mayam Loez writes, they were hinting that you might want to look over there at Ruth. <laughs> I thought that was kind of cute. He actually says it in here. They were hinting at Ruth. May God send you a suitable wife. The one you just asked me about. Whose girl is she? Actually, she's nobody's. <laughs> Incidentally, it says here in Mayam Loez um, that when he greeted them in God's name, that that was, that was the, um, the source of the custom whereby we now say to each other, Shalom Aleichem. And we respond, Aleichem Shalom. It comes from Boaz greeting the people in the field. There's more to say. We'll hold it to next week, but I'm running out of time here. But I know, right? Hey, we had a lot of extra readings. But listen, this is the deal where when we say shalom aleichem to someone, we know, we know that shalom is a one-word blessing, nothing missing, nothing broken. When we say shalom aleichem to someone, we're actually, among so many other things, blessing them with financial abundance. And when they say to you, aleichem shalom, and to unto you be shalom, they're, they're saying, and may you among all the other blessings, finances is just one aspect of it. 
but unto you may you be abundantly blessed financially. Well, why do we say shalom? Because Ma'am brings down that shalom is a name of God. You know, like Sar Shalom? Now listen. All that we said today, what do we know? What do we know?